Hi, I'm Bob Boshansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. There is information coming out almost every day about our previous president. Some of it is slanted in his favor, but most of it is not kind, to say it kindly. And the reason for all the books that are critical of Donald John Trump is because he was probably the worst president we have ever had. I have with me today a man who has put together and edited a book with 18 people, plus his own essays, contributing essays about Trump, almost a Pirandello play on words. My guest is Julian Zelizer, who is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He is a CNN political analyst and a regular guest on NPR. His new book is The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment, The Most Predictable, Unconventional Presidency. And what was predictable about Trump? He he doesn't seem to be very smart, but he does have rat lake-like cunning. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, and I guess there's there's two ways in which even the most unpredictable, unconventional uh, president uh, did things that we could see in long-term perspective made sense. Meaning one, if you look at the policies of the Trump administration, many of them fit pretty well within what Republicans have been doing since the 1980s and 90s. That means supply-side tax cuts, uh, restrictionist policies on immigration, deregulation, fighting climate change, all of this, which was the bread and butter of Trump's policies, as well as uh, conservative federal court appointments, are things we've been seeing from the GOP for a while. And second, even some of his tactics uh, didn't come out of thin air his use of the conservative media, uh, his willingness to introduce toxic language into partisan politics uh, are elements of Republican politics, at least going back to Newt Gingrich in the 1980s and, and certainly accelerating with the Tea Party during the 2010. So, so the point of the title and, and the point of how I frame it is that uh, we can re- actually understand where Trump came from and see a certain logic to what he was doing within the history of Republican politics. But in many ways, uh, he was ignorant about geography, history, the law. So he must have had advisors who were pushing him along in the direction they wanted him to go in. I think that's true. Uh, Some of it's instinctive. I I think certainly on the tactics, he's someone who's watched TV. He he watched enough politics, I'm sure, over the years, including when he was doing, uh, you know, birtherism during the Obama years that he had a feel for what you could do. So it might have been instinct rather than uh, learning about politics. And then on policy, I think it's a combo. I think I do think instinctively he supports a lot of what the Republicans have been pushing for, such as tax cuts and deregulation. So he didn't have to read a lot of books to get there. Uh, But certainly he surrounded himself with modern, you know, Republican politicians uh, such as Mark Meadows, who pushed him in this direction. Uh, By espousing racist and white supremacist ideas, he allowed people who may have harbored these ideas to act them out. And in fact, he encouraged them to do so. He did. And uh, this is a theme that comes out in many of the essays of the book, uh, whether we're talking about immigration or essays on uh, white nationalism. Again, we can't read into his mind. And so one question which remains, and I'm sure people will continue to look at, is how much of this came from genuine belief or how much was political, understanding this was going to stir up 
elements of the Republican Party uh, in uh, to his advantage. Uh, but certainly, whether looking at his Twitter feed or looking at the rhetoric he used at rallies, uh, both before and after becoming president, uh, this kind of material was the red meat he threw out to uh, his crowds all the time. And reckoning with the Trumpian GOP, you mentioned that uh, his election exposed how one of the nation's major political parties had been radicalized. And what is ironic about that statement is that the Republican Party of Lincoln was known as radical Republicans. Right. A very different kind of radicalism. But it, it draws, it derives from this idea uh, some people have uh, certainly seen of asymmetric polarization, meaning the parties did polarize since the 1970s. You have fewer moderates in both parties. Uh, both parties moved uh, more toward their base or extremes. But the Republicans did it in more dramatic fashion. As a whole, Republicans moved further to the right than Democrats did to the left. And in terms of tactics, Republicans uh, became much more willing to deploy a kind of partisanship without without guardrails than Democrats were. And if you understand the difference with the parties, it becomes easier to understand how did Trump win the nomination and how did he retain the support of so many Republicans despite everything we saw. And that's interesting, uh, coming to uh, the midterm elections this November. Um, the Republicans think it's a cakewalk for them and they've got uh, the, the tailwind and they think they've got all the things going right, but Trump keeps on supporting the worst of the worst. And I'm not sure that uh, the old line Republicans think that's a good thing. And secondly, uh, the other uh, problem is that the Democrats really haven't put forth clear ideas. And you're talking about the asymmetric fights that they have. Republicans lie and Democrats not so much. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, a lot of issues there. Uh, one is what does the Republican Party do with Trump still being basically the voice of the party at this point, uh, often throwing his support behind nominees who, who are not going to win? I think what Republicans are looking for in some ways is a cleaned up version of Trump, meaning someone who still does what Trump did as president in terms of how he fought and also promotes the same policies, but like a Governor DeSantis in Florida. Uh, someone who might appear a little more uh, professional politically, so to speak. Uh, and then Democrats have have their problems. And uh, there's a lot of criticism. And this was true during the Trump years that Democrats were not doing enough to define their own ideas and push for some policies that are at the heart of, of their party. And they have a problem going after Republicans, meaning because it's asymmetric, they're not willing to do uh, what Republicans are willing to do. Stephen Bannon famously said that uh, Democrats come uh, for a pillow fight and Republicans come prepared, uh, you know, for the uh, head headshot and that you have two parties doing different things, whether it's not telling the truth or whether it's just destroying opponents, uh, their character that poses a problem for Democrats in this era. On the, on the other hand, though, <clears throat> the Democrats uh, have been fairly fortunate in the redistricting. It was expected that they would lose a ton of seats, and yet uh, it's come out fairly even thus far. So uh, if they could hold on to the seats that they've had and maybe pick up a few that are in contention, and there were very, very few seats in contention, I would say 
40 at the most, but there are 435 seats that are up every two years. So 40 isn't a whole lot and not all of them are in their favor. So uh, it, it may not be a cakewalk for Republicans, but it's certainly not an easy job for Democrats. Yeah, and midterms usually go poorly for the president's party. Uh, and so you're just fighting against history other than two exceptions in the modern era. Um, it, it usually doesn't go well. So the only thing that might help is favorable redistricting and whether the courts don't knock down uh, some of the redistricting that's happened. You point out in your book uh, that Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein, who wrote in 2012, 2012, I mean, if our democracy is to regain its health and vitality, the culture and ideological center of the Republican Party must change. We understand the values of mainstream journalists, including the effort to report both sides of a story, but balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. This is the problem of false equivalence. And that's another problem for Democrats. Mainstream media is just not reporting things fairly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big issue. Uh, it's a tough challenge. It's certainly true in journalism. If two parties are basically operating according to different rules, uh, as a journalist, the right thing is not just to say both parties are basically the same and, and they have their differences. What you want to do as a journalist is capture how the parties are in such fundamentally different places in terms of the democratic process, in terms of what they're willing to say or not say. And it's a challenge for historians. And, and, and it was a challenge in this book. Uh, as accurate history, you want to capture some of what President Trump was able to do, what his party was able to support, uh, and not just say it's just a cause of the parties being further apart, but it's a cause of the Republican Party having shifted so far away from where mainstream politics has become. And uh, at some levels, creating a pretty dysfunctional political system. And, and accuracy actually entails writing about that as opposed to trying to paper it over for some uh, objective norm that actually gives you a, a, a false view of where politics is. And yet, if we go back to 1964 uh, and Barry Goldwater, his famous uh, statement that uh, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. So oh, it's okay. been a lot around a lot longer than just the last 40 years. And and look, Goldwater lost in 64. Yeah, he lost true. in one of the biggest landslide defeats. And and at the time, Republicans took the lesson to be don't do what Goldwater's doing. I mean, that was the model even for Richard Nixon uh, and for Republicans really through Reagan. And then it started to change. So Goldwater was a short-term loser in politics. But over the long run, that quote you read, I think, in many ways embodies what the philosophy of the GOP has become and what the successful elected officials such as Donald Trump have embraced. Yeah. And uh, uh, although uh, Paul Manafort uh, helped nominate Gerald Ford in 1976, it was Reagan who won in 1980 with 489 electoral votes and moved the country further to the right. Uh, major tax cuts in 1981 started the lie of trickle-down economics. He also reduced regulation by elevating to the heads of agencies people who disagreed with their primary responsibilities, and now Trump has continued with that in his uh, last four years. 
Yeah, those are two parts of the Republican playbook that we see since the 80s. Uh, that when uh, we see this in the Trump presidency, it shouldn't be a surprise. The supply side tax cuts based on this idea of trickle down economics, you cut taxes for the wealthy and for corporations and everyone will benefit, which is not how it's played out. But it's an argument that sustains the tax cut of 1981, the tax cuts under George W. Bush in 2001 and 2003, and finally the tax cut of, uh, of President Trump, which was one of his major legislative achievements. And the other part of the playbook is if you can't dismantle government programs because government programs remain pretty popular, so you can't just slash them. Reagan learned this. Trump would learn this with the Affordable Care Act. What you do instead is you appoint people to head agencies who don't support the mission of the agency. And so they won't staff the agency. They won't pursue the policies the agency is supposed to pursue and you essentially keep the infrastructure of government in place, but gradually erode its capacity to do things. And we saw this, for example, at the State Department under President Trump, where positions just weren't filled. And you had a thinning of the diplomatic corps, which President Trump didn't really care about and didn't think was very important. Uh, and it had effects. It undermined our relationships with other countries and our ability um, to maintain healthy and functional diplomatic relations. Uh Tax cuts on the wealthy and the trickle-down economic theory, I think that was uh, Laffer's laugher uh, back in the 1980 or so. But uh, I had on my show uh, Douglas Holtz Eakin, former head of the Congressional Budget Office under George W. Bush. And uh, I asked him, so does this really bring in more revenue when you cut the taxes at the very top? And he said, I had my staff do a study and what we came up with that when you cut the very top taxes, the top earner taxes, the one tenth or even one percent, the government only gets back 30 to 50 cents on the dollar for each dollar of taxes cut. And Paul Krugman calls this a zombie idea because it's been disproven so often and yet it keeps on coming back. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it's not really an intellectual argument. It's a political rhetoric. It's a justification for a set of policies uh, that skew upwards. And uh, this is this is one place where, again, President Trump fit perfectly into what we've seen from every Republican president other than uh, George H.W. Bush, who departed from it by raising taxes to curb the deficit and actually paid a political price for it. Uh, including Newt Gingrich, who basically wouldn't support him in the 92 election. So, so this whole area, you're correct. It's, it's, a, it's a, policy, a set of policies. Uh, it doesn't have much justification, nor does it have any kind of empirical support, uh, but it's something that we saw the Trump administration embrace wholeheartedly. And uh, in appointing people who don't do the job of the agencies that they were appointed to, We've got to go back to Reagan appointing Clarence Thomas, as you point out, head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who was against affirmative action and refused to file lawsuits in response to discrimination complaints against companies. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is Thomas. This is before he's on the court. This was really one of his most important moments professionally in the political realm. And he just didn't support what his government body was supposed to do. And when you do that, it's incredibly effective if you want to weaken government. Uh, and 
This is a playbook that has remained central. Uh, and again, it comes from the fact that you can't so easily dismantle these programs because they are popular and have strong support. It's been one of the challenges of the conservative movement uh, since the 1980s. And uh, the moment President Trump really discovered that was with the Affordable Care Act, where he went forward with repeal and replace, which had been a mantra for the GOP on the Affordable Care Act. But in the end, he couldn't get it through Congress. So these other mechanisms are just uh, much easier to implement. And you also, <clears throat> excuse me, point out that Reagan presented many of the same ideas as Goldwater, but with much greater effect. He also said, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And so this dismantling of the infrastructure as best as they could do, not totally eliminated, was ongoing since uh, the beginning here. And it's an important part of the years from 2017 to 2021, meaning uh, there, is, there are many people who in some ways take the Trump presidency lightly, uh, but a lot was accomplished on this goal. He, he did continue this effort to weaken the power of government. And in many areas, such as climate change and the environment, we saw it happen uh, or in the fiscal health of the country or in our public health infrastructure again and again, uh, that mission continued. And I think there were consequences to these four years that it's going to take a while to reverse if politicians want to reverse it. And I think I heard somebody say, or I read it, that um, all of these things, and it's not just the first time, Republicans screw things up and then Democrats try to repair them but they're hampered because usually one house or the other is not in their control. So they can't. And then they don't get reelected because they've been stymied by the party that messed it up in the first place. Yeah. Now, there's another asymmetry. Republicans can live with dysfunction much easier than Democrats can. If you are a party in favor of government, you need the government to work. You need the process to work. If you're against it, uh, stasis and standstill and dysfunction is totally fine. And so Democrats are always trying to make up ground in many ways, uh, and they can't even do that. Uh, and so then they are a party that uh, very often doesn't seem to have strong vision or strong momentum. And of course, even when they don't control the Senate, uh, the use of the filibuster as a normal procedure for everything creates a 60-person uh, supermajority requirement for legislation, which is almost impossible to achieve. I like a quote that you uh, wrote about in your book uh, by uh, Barack Obama. Uh, the rough Palin, he said in his memoirs, it seemed as if the dark spirits that had long been lurking on the edges of the modern Republican Party, xenophobia, anti-electoralism, paranoid conspiracy theories, and antipathy towards Black and brown folks were finding their way to center stage. And uh, Obama said, she had no idea what the hell she was talking about. Yeah, I mean, uh, Obama in his memoirs, um, The Promised Land, and in an interview he did with David Remnick right after his presidency ended, uh, in both of those cases, they're really interesting to read. And they're helpful for how I even thought of this book on Trump, because in both of those cases, he's looking back and he's in some ways thinking he made this speech, Obama, in 2004, 
talking about how we aren't a red and blue nation, that we are the United States of America and there's more unity than people think. But he ends his presidency with incredible contention and fracture. And he has had to deal with the Republican Party that basically sought to prevent him from doing anything. And with the Tea Party deployed tactics uh, that were incredibly radical. And in his memoir, in that interview, he's saying, I should have seen it coming. He's kind of acknowledging I was too optimistic or I didn't really understand what the Republican Party was about. And Sarah Palin was important in 2008 because she previewed a lot of what we would see uh, with President Trump from her attacking the quote unquote lamestream media uh, to her having rallies that were filled with white nationalist images. And so Obama's kind of retrospective acknowledgement of what the Republican Party had become for me was very important as I put this collection together and trying to understand Trump that way, as opposed to, oh my gosh, where did this come from out of nowhere uh, type of approach? But I think Mitch McConnell uh, told him right up front what was going to happen. Within months of of Obama's election, he was confronted with the full force of the radicalized GOP. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell vowed to make Obama a one-term president. Yeah, and so, I mean, when, uh, from my perspective, when uh, Obama still had that optimism in 2008 and 2009. It was kind of misplaced and he shouldn't have been surprised. It's it's a question I would love uh, to talk more about with with the former president, with Obama, because it's, it's unclear why he didn't see that, whether it was just uh, the optimism that was so attractive politically to many voters or it was uh, an unwillingness to see what was right before his eyes. I mean, Senator McConnell was never unclear, nor were many other Republicans about what they were going to do while he was in office. Which is even more re- remarkable because Joe Biden came in with some similar optimism because he had been in the Senate. Oh, my buddies will they'll take care of me. Well, that's not true. Yeah. And it, it doesn't happen. And that's a place where I do believe, again, I don't know if it's instinct or knowledge that in many ways, Trump had a better feel of where his party was for sure and what he could do. And Trump's approach was, I'm going to play to the division rather than imagine there's some path to unity. And it didn't work to win two terms, uh, but it worked for him to have a term to maintain a lot of support uh, and to grow his votes in the 2020 election, despite Again, everything that shocked and awed the country. Yeah, he got 71 million votes. That's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. Um, And the GOP was Trump's party, not because Trump had seized control, but because he fit so perfectly into what some observers were still nostalgically nostalgically calling the party of Lincoln. Uh, Well, that's continuing. Even out of office, he is still the leader of the party in many senses. A hundred percent. And if you look at Congress and you look at some of the up and coming Republicans, you know, they're not so far off from Trump. Again, they might be a little more constrained or they might have more experience in politics or or play by some of the norms we expect. Uh, But this is where the party is. And to now imagine that with Trump gone, the party changes is a little bit like when Obama thought in 2008, after his victory, uh, that this party was going to 
all of a sudden uh, look much more functional or less radical than it did? So the, um, the conversation we've had up until this point were as a result of your two essays, the first two essays. Now I'd like to move on to uh, the third essay uh, or the, the, the third one I'm going to talk about. There were 19 essays in your book. That was way too many for us to fit into an hour. So I pared it down to those I thought were the most important for us to talk about. And this next one is Militant Whiteness in the Age of Trump by Kathleen Ballou. She talks about in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August 2017, organized white power movement people stormed into the limelight as members marched, chanted, beat counter protesters, and killed a young woman by driving a car into a crowd of people. The movement remained present for the duration of Donald Trump's tenure in the Oval Office. Yeah, I mean, Charlottesville remains such an important marker and moment in understanding um, and understanding the Trump presidency. And Kathleen is one of the great experts on the history um, of this white power movement. She's really been doing amazing work on this, really argues that um, the expansion of white power organizations, uh, you know, racist uh, uh, white organizations committed to these issues, even willing to deploy violence. It's been something that's been on the map since the mid 1990s um, when we had the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And it's continued to accelerate. In Charlottesville, these organizations were there. They were the ones uh, that were there to protest, allegedly focused on Confederate monuments, but actually interested in much more. And she also writes about white nationalism as an idea uh, and the way in which Trump was willing to use rhetoric uh, that embraced some of these ideas or uh, certainly tried to stir up this kind of um, idea in, in the electorate. And, and Charlottesville, both of those are at work through his comments, through the organizations on the ground. And she argues it remained an important part of the administration. And, and she also highlights the administration didn't do much to fight against the growth of these organizations, um, focusing on international terrorism as opposed to domestic terrorism. Well, was that... Um... Uh, a laxity on Obama's part or uh, earlier on or before that Bush's uh, uh, administrations? Well, you did have under Clinton after Oklahoma City, actually, there are efforts uh, to really crack down on these organizations with some success. Uh, so uh, it was acknowledged. It continues to some level under Bush and Obama. Uh, and according to what we have seen, it, it diminishes greatly during the Trump years, meaning uh, resources and a focus put on these groups as opposed to others. And uh, the uh, history of white nationalism in this country calls attention to the relationship among street level white power action, political rhetoric and policymaking, a relationship that is not yet borne out in our traditional archives and that historians have only just begun to examine. A full history of both the Trump administration and the broad alliance of fringe groups it was able to mobilize for its own purposes will require time and distance. Yet some of that story is apparent even in the immediate aftermath of the Trump presidency. Those are Kathleen's words. Yeah, they're very, very well written and in some ways captures what I try to do with this book series. Uh, this is the third one I've done. And, 
and it's a first cut. And so what I have are very good historians who are good at taking a long view of a president rather than the kind of presidential historians who you often hear are doing the behind the scenes accounts. And uh, what she's saying is true, that some of this we can already start to tease out. We can already start to write essays like the one she wrote about these relationships, about how white nationalism fit into the Trump presidency. But the conversation is going to continue for decades and we'll keep learning more. We'll keep refining our arguments. But she's an example of how you could do a pretty good job uh, right out of the gate in outlining what what this part of a presidency looked like. Um, There are three terms that are used in her essay, white power, white nationalism and white supremacy. Could you define those a little bit better for us? Yeah, I mean, the the white uh, power really is about organizations devoted uh, to that cause uh, and, and even using uh, militarism uh, as as a tool um, to to obtain this. It's I mean, it goes back to the KKK, really. And then white nationalism is a is a broader idea. And we've heard a lot of this through the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's ideas of race that are deeply embedded in American political history. Uh, but which still get expression even in a post-civil rights history, uh, which continue to promote the whiteness uh, of the country and a, a kind of uh, supremacy uh, of, of the existing racial order. Um, and then finally, there's just much more explicit uh, uh, rhetoric deployed about this that's sometimes not as subtle and connects with white power movements. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for those who are just tuning in. Uh, This is Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is Julian Zelizer, editor of a book of essays, uh, The Presidency of Donald J. Trump. Uh, And I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Kathleen talks about uh, in 2018, a gunman killed 11 people and wounded six at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. In 2019, a gunman opened fire on two mosques in Christ Church, New Zealand, killing 51 people. A few months later, in an El Paso Walmart, another gunman killed 23 and wounded that many more. These events have usually been described as individual acts of anti-Semitism anti-Islamic and anti-immigrant violence. And they certainly were, but they were also carried out by white power activists, all of whom shared the same ideology. Yeah, and she's a critic of the lone wolf argument that there are people um, such as those attacks you've talked about who uh, are, are on their own and we should understand it that way. And she's arguing that with white power movements, um, it's intentionally done this way, meaning the, the goal is often to spread information through social media, uh, to forge connections with individuals who are going to be sympathetic through that kind of communication. And ultimately, you see uh, violence done, uh, justified based on these ideas. And the Tree of Life is an example of that, um, where it was quite clear what the mentality is or where that mentality came from. Uh, for the shooter. And it was not very far from all the ideas we have now been discussing in her essay. And uh, the history of of white power activism shows that the movement has typically operated at two registers, 
public-facing, performative activism, and paramilitary underground work that paves the way to future violence. And within that, uh, she also points out that we have to look at the activities of the base, a group that uses paramilitary training camps to prepare for war. We have to watch the Oath Keepers, which recruits veterans, veteran active duty troops and police. The three percenters, which claim to be enforcing the constitution through extra legal military activity and the Proud Boys who have flashed white power hand signs and referenced movement text, even as their commitment to the ideological aspect of it all. All of these groups are part of the same movement. Yeah, and and we obviously saw this all in January 6th as well. And um, as as those investigations continue and they bear out more information about the connections between the administration, certain Republican legislators and the groups that came that day, which included all the groups that you mentioned, uh, with great clarity, we saw on that terrible day in American history uh, that there are many ties that bind. Um, Republican politics at this moment to these organizations. And it was the Trump just made this very explicit uh, in many ways. He just said the silent part out loud, as people like to say. Uh, but January 6th, this was all front and center and and in ways is a as a end point uh, to what we saw start with Charlottesville in terms of Trump's presidency. And talking about the asymmetrical talking points between the Democrats and Republicans, uh, it's pointed out that in the Trump years, some Republicans actively directed tension, attention away from the white power movement. In the week of the El Paso shooting, a GOP talking points memo suggested steering the conversation away from white nationalism to an argument that implies that both sides are to blame. Again, another example of false equivalence. Yeah, it's fine. It's interesting. There was an years ago, there was um, an interview with Lee Atwater, who was a famous Republican strategist from South Carolina, who a lot of what he did was to play on this kind of sentiment. But he used and he told his uh, people he worked for, candidates he worked for, including George H.W. Bush in 1988. The whole point was, you don't say this stuff. You use code words. You use states' rights, for example, he said in this interview. But we're really talking about the same backlash politics um, that the George Wallaces were uh, involved in in the 1960s. And now it seems the shift has been instead of code words like uh, welfare, you know, queens or states rights, you talk about equivalency or you talk about both sides doing it. And that memo is pretty powerful because you see it's not just an imagined interpretation. It's just coming right out of actual material from the GOP. Uh and racial, racial animus unsurprisingly shaped the Trump administration's response to the no, novel coronavirus. Trump routinely called the COVID-19 the Kung flu or the China virus. And partly as a result of that, anti-Asian hate crimes have risen dramatically. Yeah. And when the president is willing to uh, use that kind of language, it's going to have an effect. And in a book that really talks about the loyalty of uh, his supporters to the president, uh, it's it's not insignificant for uh, a president to say something like that. And it's going to lead people, some people, uh, to do bad things based on those ideas. But trying to point out that what you're hearing and seeing is not true is 
really weird. Uh, and one of the things that you point out or that Kathleen points out is on January 6th, 2021, even as body camera footage revealed stark and terrifying images of the day, GOP representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia described the storming of the Capitol as a normal tourist visit. Yeah, and um, this has continued really through today. I mean, after a few days or weeks when some Republicans had strong language about what had happened, including Senator McConnell and what the former president had done in the process, you saw that shift quickly. You either had Republicans who just didn't talk about it anymore uh, or uh, Republicans who presented it as not a product of the Trump presidency, but a product of both sides getting too heated over political issues, or you had a total uh, change calling it a tourist trip somehow. And we have an essay in the book by Nicole Hammer about the conservative media and how integral it was to the Trump presidency. And I think that's relevant because it's not simply that the former president Republicans would contort what you saw right in front of your eyes and call it something different. They now had a big platform, uh, including Fox television, to promote and perpetuate these ideas to supporters and, and to others, uh, as well as social media, Twitter, et cetera. Uh, and that's a big institutional change in American politics that's pretty important understanding his four years in office. And that reminds me of a scene from uh, the Marx Brothers movie, Night at the Opera, uh, when Chico Marx said to Margaret Dumont, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? It's very well said and uh, very accurate to describe the Trump presidency, too. So, Julian, let me posit something. Um, ending uh, Kathleen's uh, essay. Uh, I don't think that the biggest political battle this November is going to be uh, just between the Democrats and the Republicans. I personally believe that it's democracy versus autocracy. Uh, and it's very worrying. Yeah. Uh, look, you're not alone. And um, some say democracy versus autocracy. Others focused. Maybe it's not autocracy, but it's certainly deep wounds uh, to our democratic process, which you see with voting disenfranchisement and, and more. And I think that's fair to say. Uh, and the erosion is real. The threats are real. Uh, and this is a part of how you study the Trump presidency. So it's very much on the table. Uh, if this vision of party politics wins out. Uh, it has implications for the strength of our system. Now I want to move to another essay, uh, Latinos for Trump uh, by Geraldo Cadova. Um, in the Republican Party, Trump's positions were like those of Pat Buchanan, Bob Dole, John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Herman Cain. And Cain, who at one point argued for an electrified border wall to electrocute, <laughs> electrocute migrants. Uh, Ronald Reagan and both Bushes were Republican outliers when it came to immigration and border enforcement, while Trump's anti-immigration policies were in line with the Republican mainstream. How does that work? Yeah, I, I mean, Jerry's uh, uh, essay is very provocative. I think it's going to be one that catches people's attention. And a part of it is about Trump moving uh, in the direction where the party's been moving since the mid 1990s in California, 
Um, you had uh, a hardening of immigration politics in the GOP um, with Governor Wilson uh, and, and a big battle over a proposition during that time. And that's continued. And, and Republicans who have fought against it, including George W. Bush, actually, have failed. And Trump went all in on the new Republican uh, platform, essentially, on immigration. But this essay is provocative in that he argues uh, that Latino vote uh, increased for Trump. And uh, he argues it's not despite Trump's immigration policies, it's actually because of it, and that there was a lot of support in the community for his immigration policies, for his economic policies, uh, and for his attacks on, on socialism. And so this essay posits that this is a trend that can continue and help Republicans actually shore up support in an area you wouldn't expect it. And uh, it's believed that uh, Joe Biden probably could have had many more votes, but it seems as though the Democrats aren't paying attention to their core base and that is people of color and uh, regular working class people. And those are the people that Trump had uh, appealed to. And he did pick off some people of color, including and especially Latinos, because if you go down to the southern border of Texas and Mexico, uh, he lost, I'm so sorry, uh, Trump won quite a few people to his way of thinking. And they live right there on the border. So. Democrats may pay a lot of lip service to certain things, but they're not doing a whole lot for these constituencies. Yeah, and I think what the, this essay raises a question directly connected to that. I mean, one part of the story is what you just outlined. And um, we have a couple essays that talk about that. Um, we have one by uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor on race. And, and part of her argument is Democrats have just not paid attention to these issues or they've moved very far to the center and they've alienated um, or disappointed constituencies they need uh, to expand their own support. And in 2020, you saw some of this uh, not be as strong as you'd expect. And we could imagine if Trump wasn't the candidate, the vote might have been uh, even less for Democrats, meaning if you didn't have that as an opponent. But this essay also argues there's genuine appeal in Latino communities to some of what the Trump administration offered. So it's kind of a double challenge for Democrats going forward if you really look at how the Trump years unfolded. And what I think the Democrats are losing sight of is that many Latinos are quite conservative and uh, they are, many of them are evangelicals, which is a, a religious uh, conservatism uh, that they adhere to. Uh, so uh, I think that they better wake up or there's gonna be problems in 2022 and 2024. Uh, and one of the other things uh, that uh, Jerry wrote about is by and large, Trump's Latino supporters rejected the premise that Trump was either anti-immigrant or anti-Latino. But without doubt, they felt themselves to be on firmer ground when talking about their support for Trump because of his economic policies, his defense of religious freedom, and his strong statements against socialism. Yeah, uh, those are all parts of why that vote increased. Again, Democrats still won a greater portion of the votes. That's still important for the Democrats to think about. But this essay is really painting a pretty broad picture uh, of why uh, a, a significant number of Latinos were more, they weren't just comfortable with Trump, they were excited about 
about him. And so if you're just thinking politically, Democrats do need a response to that, or it's not going to be automatic or easy to see how those votes will flip back or flip it all to the Democrats. And uh, one of the other things pointed out is one of Trump's main appeals for Latinos and all of, um, okay, all, all of his lies was his self-presentation as a businessman who could deliver prosperity to individuals and to the nation as a whole. If Trump were to be indicted, and this is my statement here, if Trump were to be indicted, maybe even convicted, will Latino support still fall away? I, I don't know. I'm not. I, the good thing is I'm not in the prediction business. I just look backwards. But I, I don't know if it would. Ha- look, it's like the the uh, connection many Latinos felt between his presenting himself as a supporter of evangelical uh, religion uh, versus his personal life, which had absolutely nothing even close to what those values uh, say they espouse. And yet, not only with Latinos, but with evangelical Christians, he, re- he retained uh, strong support in those communities, because in the end, there are pragmatic decisions about what is a president offering in terms of policy, court picks uh, versus who they are. And it might be the same with business. It might be, look, if there's corruption and grift and it all comes forward uh, in, in court cases, it won't really affect how they ultimately think about what he was championing. I think the point of that essay is the support is very deep for these ideas. And uh, it became very clear uh, with Trump uh, just how deep that was. And this final uh, statement I'm going to read, I think encapsulates all of that. If Trump's prosperity gospel made sense, if only because the Republican Party had preached it for so long, so Latino conservatives would adhere to it blindly. Utterly perplexing was the idea that a twice-divorced marital infidel accused sexual abuser, spokesperson for whatever the opposite of personal responsibility was, could somehow be the pious defender of religious freedom. And white evangelicals felt the same way. They got what they wanted. They got a majority who are probably going to do away with Roe v. Wade. No, exactly. He delivered on the court picks, not just with the Supreme Court, um, but with federal court appointments. And that, in the end, is more important. We forget evangelical uh, Christian organizations are much more pragmatic than people think. And this has been true since Ronald Reagan, who also didn't fit the bill of what they might have been looking for, but who provided them with political support. And that ran right through the Trump years. We're going on now to um, a, uh, another essay, Send Her Back, Trump's Feud with Feminists and Conservative Women's Triumph. Uh, that's like a contradiction. Uh, and it's by Leandra Zarnow. Um, on January, <clears throat> excuse me, on January, on January 21st, 2017, the day after Trump's inauguration, an unexpected swell of nearly 5 million protesters, almost as many people as attended his uh, inauguration, I guess, uh, streamed into the streets in over 650 locations around the country and more than 260 additional worldwide. Uh, that's a strong protest against him and for what he stood for amongst people other than those we've just talked about. Yeah, I mean, Leandra argues that uh, Trump really positioned himself in opposition to what feminism had been fighting for since the 1970s and that his presidency in itself was almost an act of defiance uh, toward 
uh, the ways in which feminism had pushed us all to reimagine what the household is, what culture should look like, uh, and and much more. And it you, you saw this unfold with the protests that start uh, right around his inauguration and will continue through the 2018 midterms. Yet she also argues that he uh, kind of nurtured a cadre of uh, conservative female politicos uh, like Kellyanne Conway, who uh, embraced an individualistic-based idea of feminism. And she argues we're not insignificant, that it's a pretty uh, powerful cohort he put together. And she also writes how you saw an increase in uh, white female votes for Trump by 2020. So it's both a clash with feminism, but she's also showing that there was, like with Latinos, this effort to nurture a new part of the Republican coalition uh, that bore some fruit for him. But Julian, uh, his misogyny is there for everyone to see. And in fact, uh, one of the things that uh, Leandra points out is that Trump's slights from crooked Hillary to send her back should be seen as the more than rhetorical weaponry. These buzzwords delivered by Trump and repeated by followers at rallies on and on Twitter were the most overt display of the misogyny that drove his presidency. And I'm firmly convinced that the U.S. is as deeply misogynistic as any country could be. And it stems from, I think, religious-based patriarchy. Well, uh, whatever the, the people have different explanations, I think there's many people who agree, though, on the way misogyny still works in American politics. And certainly there's a through line from Eleanor Roosevelt to Hillary Clinton, where they have been subject to these kinds of attacks. And, and Trump was fine. Again, this is an area where he says the silent part out loud. He, he was very explicit in playing to these kinds of ideas, especially in his run against Clinton in 2016. Uh, and yet, and yet he was also able to bring together, whether it was in his administration or in the electorate, uh, female support that didn't mind this part of the Trump presidency or uh, wasn't focused on that. Like with evangelical Christian votes, they were more supportive of the rest of it and willing to accept that. And ultimately, the Trump presidency will be remembered as the worst nightmare come true for progressive feminists and the greatest boon for conservative women. Yes, I mean, that's that's the point of her essay. And it's yet another piece of evidence. This is a consequential four years. It's not simply about outrageous tweets, but it's about shifting policy away uh, from some of what had developed since the 1960s. Um, I, I want to go now to uh, Michael uh, Kazin's uh, essay, The Path of Most Resistance, How Democrats Battled Trump and Moved Left. Alarmed by Trump's mendacious narcissism, racism, and ineptitude, a good many Democrats openly identified themselves with the resistance. Is there a, a, an actual formal organization called the resistance? Well, it was a term used during the Trump years, and it was a term used to put together uh, organizations, some progressive, some not. I mean, it included suburban women who are often more moderate, but who were uh, passionately mobilized politically since 2016 to make sure uh, that the Trump presidency and Trump regime would not continue. And that meant recruiting candidates, getting votes, canvassing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we saw this in 2018. Um, but that was a term used to include many 
groups connected to Black Lives Matter, connected to the women's marches that Kazin argued really flourish uh, during the Trump years. He gives room in some ways for that kind of progressivism to find a place at the table uh, in a way where Democratic presidents, including Obama, weren't able to do that as easily. Um, to make headway, Democrats did take good comfort in the diversity of their base. The potential Democratic majority included most people of color, most voters of all races, either under 30 or who live in big cities or inner ring suburbs, and most recently immigrants. So it's a big tent organization. And sometimes you hear Republicans say, well, they're a big tent organization. Not really. No, it's not. And there, there's an asymmetry. The Republican Party is much narrower. And we've talked today about you know, gains certainly with Latino voters, gains with some uh, women voters, but it's not the same kind of party. It's still a party, the GOP, really rooted in rural conservative white areas. And Trump understood this and he played to that all the time. He made sure that was solid, never, ever departing from that. And Democrats are just a much more diverse, literally and politically uh, uh, party. And this is a challenge. It, it, it makes it very hard to put the pieces together. You can't be united on everything. And, and Kazin argues that one of the interesting parts about this new left is they were more pragmatic and ultimately were okay making a decision to go with Joe Biden, a centrist and someone who often pitted himself against the left as their candidate for victory. Um, but I think Kazin's getting right to the heart of why the Democrats were in such a different place during these four years. Well, However, uh, we look at this, uh, the swing voters who rejected Trump did not rush to embrace Biden's party. Democrats won the narrowest possible majority in the Senate, lost 14 seats in the House, and failed to take a single state legislative chamber away from the GOP. And I would wonder whether that was because uh, of things that were said during the campaign, uh, defund the police. Uh, I mean, most moderate voters, and most voters are more moderate than the progressives, don't want to hear that. They want the police to protect them. So when you start to go too progressive outwardly, I think it's deleterious to the success of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and this, this was a, a huge source of debate for Democrats. Um, after 2018 and after 20, 2020, uh, where that hurt them. Again, since they are not a united party, since they are not in the same place of uh, where the GOP is, they have to be much more cautious. And there is an argument to be made that part of what happened was an expansion of progressivism, for sure. But that also created um, difficulties for retaining swing voters or retaining independent voters. And again, the 2020 election, Trump lost. There's no question about it. But he didn't do terribly, um, given what some people might have expected, nor did the GOP do that poorly. Uh, again, given the turbulence, you would expect another 1964. But that's not what happened. So it's a warning sign. And uh, it is a set of issues and challenges that Democrats are going to have to deal with. And they can't afford still to lose too many voters. Um, as they appeal to certain pockets of their electorate. Well, the big thing coming up in November is the Senate. Will they retain the Senate or lose? They only have 14 seats to defend, I believe, and the Republicans have 20. Yeah. But and, and Trump's making it difficult because he's 
supporting <laughs> some of the most outlandish uh, candidates. Uh, and we'll see, though, they can they could easily uh, not easily, but they could win back control. And that would be quite a challenge for the final two years of Biden's first term. Yeah. Um, so the, the last um, uh, essay that I think we'll have time for is the impeachment after Trump by Gregory P. Downs. The Trump impeachment presented a grave test, not just of the senator's, conscience, the senator's consciences, but of the constitution itself. The impeachment process was thought to be one of the most foundational elements of the constitution. Other than elections, impeachment offered the only path for Congress to remove a political leader who abused his or her power in ways that were dangerous to the republic. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to the issues of the democracy that you talked about. Uh, Downs argues that it's a question with a twice impeached president, but not twice convicted. Does impeachment really matter? Is it a useful mechanism anymore? And uh, what we saw in the Trump years was partisanship was stronger uh, than concerns about presidential power or the abuse of power. And ultimately, very few Republicans, even after January 6th, were willing to go to the place where they said he deserves to be convicted uh, in addition to being impeached by the House. And if, if what he did doesn't lead to more support for impeachment, Downs is saying, what, what, what will? Uh, is there really a mechanism for Congress at this point uh, to deal with abusive presidential power, or is there really nothing to do other than wait until the, elect, the next election? Well, what Downs also pointed out was that a president willing to abuse power is most likely willing to live with the consequences of being impeached by the House, as long as they know that they will remain in office. Yeah. And so uh, the two threats of impeachment since since Nixon, for sure, one is actually forcing someone uh, to leave. But that hasn't happened. The other, which we saw with Nixon, is shame or pressure. Uh, ultimately will lead you uh, to resign. And the question is, if, if a politician doesn't really care, if impeachment is not something that's so scary, uh, or you're not someone who is shamed like Trump, you can do it. And you can be sure that if you retain your power, you can continue doing what you wanted to do. And this was certainly the lesson Trump took from his first impeachment. And it's part of why we ended up in the place we did on January 6th. And what he uh, finalizes his essay with is that the failures of impeachment and conviction in the face of incontrovertible proof raise the specter that future political leaders will know that they have almost complete impunity as long as they retain the support of their base, no matter what the constitutional constitution says. Can the long-standing popular veneration of the constitution survive these strains? That's basically what you just said. Yeah, it's a question from the presidency. Uh, he, he showed that partisanship is incredibly strong, certainly within the GOP, and it can overcome almost every other concern in politics, governing, civility, uh, legislating, uh, and impeachment. And it's, I think, something many people will take away from the Downs chapter. It's, it's unclear whether this key part of the Constitution really is meaningful anymore. Well, Julian, I just want to tell you, you've done a great job. And I want to thank you very much for putting this all together and even more so for coming on the show. And who am I talking about when I say Julian? It's Julian Zelizer, editor, editor of the Presidency of Donald Trump, a first historical assessment, a compilation of 19 essays about the Donald J. Trump 
presidency. Uh, this has been Politics, a Love Story. I am your host, Bob Bashansky, and our guest again was Julian Zelizer. I want to thank you very much. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.